Hi, I'm here with Spencer Ayres of Future Builders. Hi, Spencer. How are you? Hi, John. I'm great. Really happy to uh, to have this conversation with you. Thanks so much. Uh, You're very welcome. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast because I know that your organization, Future Builders, are always looking at the future of work and stuff like that from an L&D perspective in particular. So it's really interesting to talk to you because most of us, we're obviously only guessing what will happen in the future. So it's always really interesting to have these conversations. Well, I think that's a really good point to start with. I think everyone really is guessing. We're we're living in probably the most uncertain times that we've had. We've got, you know, technological disruption happening all around us. We've got globalization and all of these big macro trends that are starting to emerge. And I really think that the the truthful answer is around that is that no one really knows what the future look like, looks like, and uh, and we're all trying to kind of figure out something some kind of indication about what it is so that we can prepare ourselves better. Um, but that is a, that is one of the big problems we're faced with. So I mean, at the risk of sounding like a 1980s Tomorrow's World presenter and predicting things which clearly don't happen, what is your sort of view of this future of work? What, what is it? Excellent. Well, I love the reference, firstly, um, <laughs> to Tomorrow's World. And I, I guess for me, it's a funny thing because we do talk about this this idea of the world, uh, the, the future of work. We've We've talked about it for a number of years, but I think it's a strange concept in some ways because actually the kind of future of work is already starting to happen to us right now. It's not as if it's something that is going to one day just kind of hit us, you know, when AI takes our jobs, then everyone's going to be uh, going to be kind of um, out of work and, and, and these kinds of things. I think that actually we're starting to see some of the changes happen right now. You only need to go down to your Kind of local supermarket to see how jobs are changing with self-serve checkouts it's happening across all industries and all sectors across all levels so this idea of the future of work being something which is only going to happen in the future it's actually a bit of a misnomer i think it's happening now we're starting to see small scale changes in organizations small steps small changes to individual people's jobs uh, that are uh, that that is kind of being enabled by things like technology improvements uh, and innovation it's also changing as a result of some of the societal factors that we're facing and the needs of the customer the needs of um, different kind of organizations as well so i think some of those big trends are around kind of ai and automation and the fact that you know increasingly machines robots algorithms are starting to take take on people's jobs certainly taking on at the moment some some of uh, some of the tasks that people are doing so it may not be completely disrupting people out of work but it's definitely changing the nature of the work that they do we've also seen kind of some of these changes around what it means to work itself what the nature of work is the kind of the rise of the gig economy we've seen massive uh, massive increases in um, micro companies emerging so you know one and two people startups that are uh, fitting a particular niche and and that's kind of only I think that trend is only going to be increasing so some of the you know some there's some other factors that are happening with with the future of work but I think the big message at the moment is that it's happening now so if we think about this kind of one job for the whole of your career that world has really really disappeared no longer uh, is that available we're going to have 12 different careers in our life apparently I can think now of myself as being coming to the age of 40 I've been working almost for 20 years. I've already had five different careers, probably in about 12 or 13 different different companies. Um, and yet, because I'm going to be working for longer than we currently work for, probably into my 70s, maybe even later than that, I'm probably only a third of the way through my career. So 
that really means that I'm going to be constantly having to change what I can do, change my skills, adapt to what the world needs and, uh, and those kind of things continuously um, over the next few years. So I think there's some of the challenges that we're facing about the emerging uh, kind of jobs, uh, future of work and kind of future of jobs landscape that we have. But it's, it's affecting every aspect of our life. It's interesting what you were saying about the fact that it's here already. And I think when we do think about the future of work, we always imagine in kind of great leaps forward into some kind of Star Trek type uh, unrecognizable environment. But I suspect it won't be like that, as you say. It's kind of creeps up on you. And it is just things like the supermarket tills tend to now be self-service. We tend to do a lot more things online. There's robotic assembly lines, which have obviously been around for many years. These are kind of creeping up on us. And obviously self-driving cars will be fairly soon, I guess, as well. So there won't necessarily be this great leap forward into into a hollow deck and a space travel it will just be sort of incremental bits and pieces. Yeah, I entirely agree. I think that 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 concept of it creeping up on you is exactly what's happening. Um, and I think that whilst it is creeping up on us, the people that are in that bubble and, and kind of understand what's happening around this will be the people that will be able to act the quickest to some of these changes. And I think one of the risks and one of the concerns that, that people should have is that if they turn a blind eye and they, and they shun some of these these changes and trends that are happening and think and try to kind of put them off until uh, until later that actually that's where it is going to hurt and if you're able to kind of be more flexible and adapt and kind of roll with with the changes that we're seeing then i think you're going to be in a much better position uh, longer term to be able to continually adapt and i think actually the world of work really is catching up with with our lives anyway with a lot of these transformations have have kind of started to come into our lives already you know for example we're we're chatting on you know voice over uh, chat at the moment um through the internet something that we couldn't do you know 15 years ago certainly 15 years ago probably a lot less than that and the quality is great and that means that whilst we've been able to do that socially for a long time it's now getting into the workplace and people are starting to be able to work more from home, work on projects that they want to be working on and have a lot more flexibility in the work that they do as well as how they do that work. Well, I think the point you, that leads us into the next question and the point you were making about the gig economy and having 12 careers, I mean, I hope that figure's false because I had nowhere near that many, which would give me a very busy uh, 20 odd years up ahead, but um, a number of different careers and certainly a number of different jobs that we're likely to have. But that all links into what challenge does this pose for learning and development this this future that we're talking about it's a huge challenge i think it really is it, and it and there's no way that we can underestimate the difficulty that this is going to be over the next few years for learning and development professionals but also the businesses at large i recently saw a a figure that 92 percent of the global ceos are worried and anxious about the growing skills gap in their companies. Um, I mean, that's a huge number. That's just not not just people that kind of know or acknowledge that there is a gap, but actually are worried uh, and, and see it as a big threat to their company. And yet, weirdly, the next number is a staggering one, which is that not one of those CEOs could actually say what the skills in their company really are. So I think we have this this weird uh, world where we're acknowledging and we understand that there are these skills gaps, but yet we can't pinpoint what those gaps are and what the needs the future needs are going to be and of course treading through that that's uncertainty and trying to find a direction of travel for the long term is a really difficult really really difficult one so i think that you know that that idea of 
making sure that we've got we're minimizing those skills gaps and giving people the opportunities is a huge problem i think that though that comes down to many different aspects of what um of what lnd really is all about i think traditionally the culture of lnd has been one of kind of top-down learning interventions it's increasingly being driven through kind of scalable maybe cheap dare i say it uh solutions through technology um, yeah, yeah, say it, say itself. it. I yeah. completely agree. It's, it drives me nuts. Please say it. It's not that the technology solutions are necessarily cheap, but the, the scale and the delivery means that it's, it's per person, a very cheap solution. And often that broadcast kind of one size fits all, often kind of click through solutions are just not enabling true learning to really happen. Um, I think a lot of the, a lot of L&D professionals and systems um, currently serve really as administrators almost to get people to manage content and ensure that people are doing what they need to be doing but actually you know we all know that that stick approach to learning if you like is not necessarily the one that's going to be proved to be the best result so i'm a firm believer that actually enabling people to be motivated and engaged in their own development is the way to get through to to enable people to develop the skills that they need to for the future economies so i think you know, there's a couple of things there around the culture of LND and what they need to do. I think there's a real worry, actually, that, the, that I, I do see a world where where LND is no longer needed, where you have actually technology solutions that mean that you don't need to have LND in the room because you can automate a lot of what what's happening. Um, and I, you know, is that a bad thing? Possibly. I hope in some ways that that doesn't happen, and I hope that. The, the the reasons that it doesn't happen are positive and enable you to continue to have uh, a human intervention as well as um, the kind of scalable scalable learning solutions as well. I think also this idea of this kind of macro trend, if you like, of the adaptability that people need to have. I think for me, we very often talk about soft skills versus hard skills for example and i know that this is a it's a a, a well kind of um well documented uh, issue and it's that soft skills are not soft they're not hard they're not easy to learn and to develop in fact they're some of the hardest things that people can develop because they take so much time and they're often about changing behaviors and mindsets of individuals but i think some of the meta skills that we need are even more important than ever skills such as weirdly the skill to know what your skills you have, the skill to know what skills you need to have. And, and again, that skill to know how to improve your skills, the, the kind of learning to learn, if that makes sense. And I think that quite often L&D is focused more on the hard skills that are easily ass assessed as opposed to more some of those softer skills that are traditionally harder to assess, harder to evaluate, but actually is so fundamentally important particularly as we move into this, uh, you know, this this VUCA world. Uh, VUCA? Sorry? Yeah, VUCA. Um, so vulnerable, uh, I think it stands for vulnerable, uncertain. Um, oh, goodness. Uh, I'm going to have to look that up. V vulnerable, uncertain. Um, chaotic? Chaotic could well be. VUCA? I've never heard of this. This is this is obviously young person's vernacular. I'm, I'm <laughs> unaware of it. I'll, <laughs> if you uh it's so it's volatile uncertain complex and ambiguous okay okay yes so um that's this kind of yeah a, a trend that seems to be happening that's kind of summing up some of those uh issues that we definitely face about increased complex complexity huge amount of uncertainty uh that's happening as well and uh, and really that kind of not knowing where we're going 
um, is, is a really big problem. But I think the the need here is for people to be able to develop their own skills and understand what skills they need to have. In fact, in recently, I think it was 2018, the World Economic Forum uh, produced a uh, the future of jobs paper and in it they outlined um, a bunch of high demand skills that are only going to increase in demand and pretty much all of those were kind of from this soft skill area of innovation and creativity complex problem solving emotional intelligence things like uh, leadership and social influence and then this big one which is a big focus of mine around active learning and kind of learning strategies and very little in it was about hard skills Although, of course, there is going to be this constant emerging needs for to develop certain hard skills as kind of new technologies or new demands um, are put in place. But I think if you can get those underpinning, that underpinning of soft skills, particularly around active learning and creativity and problem solving, they're the ones that the, the world is going to be needing and businesses are going to need so much more in the future. Well, that tallies with this idea of people needing to be adaptable. You said about the you know changing jobs, number of different things. Obviously, adaptability is there. Pace of technological change. All of these things require that adaptability point, which you're saying, which are all around the soft skills, or primarily around soft skills. And if you're saying about the CEOs, ninety odd percent of them feel that the skill shortages, but they can't really name the skills. They're obviously not talking about technical skills because they would be fairly easy to name. They must be talking Absolutely. about those, you know, less tangible skills that you that you're talking about now. I think you made a really good point that L&D tends to focus more on the harder skills because they're easier to measure. And I, this is one of my real bugbears, is that L and, because L&D seems to be always chasing hard numbers to try and justify their existence, just, we then get distracted and get and, and kind of undermine ourselves and are then less able to, or, or rather are less willing to go into soft skill areas because they're harder to measure because the measures are necessarily a lot more subjective, or going into measuring things like motivation and confidence, those kind of issues, which are huge contributors to performance and that L&D can make a difference on. We shy away from it because we, because they don't have those hard and fast measures. So we end up being driven by measures, which links us to the hard Yeah, I absolutely limits. agree. And, We're getting you know, this vicious circle. Who, who's at fault there? I, I, I think there's, there's, a, there's a huge need in organisations to be able to... Um, to put a put a number, put a quant- quantitative figure on on an improvement on on some kind of progress of you know KPIs and and having targets driven driving what you actually do. But often I think that's the wrong way around. I think you know you tend to do what you measure as opposed to kind of measure what you do. And I think what often what we should be focusing much more on are are the needs first and kind of reverse engineering those needs and then figuring out if there's some kind of way to to assess and evaluate those things that might might be very different to our current frameworks and approaches to evaluation. Um, I think, you know, when I think of assessment, I, I, I can't help but think of the the kind of original meaning of of assessment, which was actually to sit down and to have a conversation and to and to uh, to um, uh, to talk in a very uh, qualitative way, but actually, I think what we've done is is kind of watered down assessment to to um, and and not just in you know the the enterprise space or in the business world or in lifelong learning, but across the board into a figure and a, and a certain number which measures how good someone is at one thing. And actually, if there's a way that you can start to get more more of that 
qualitative view of uh, of people's abilities, then that would be a great thing. Really big challenges. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there's an easy, quick fix for any of this. But if we can start to make to move the needle on some of it, possibly using some of the technologies that we're we're starting to develop, then actually that might be uh, a good way to go. I agree, and I love that observation that we tend to put measurements before the actions. Um, and, and we should we should make our professional judgments about what the right actions yeah. are to do, rather than rather than worry too much about the measurement first. But I think there is a there is a rule there is a law which means that in every, every single meeting a senior manager will always say something like how will we evaluate it how will we measure it. I think senior people feel under pressure to make those kind of points in meetings, and therefore things yes. end up being simplified down to what can be measured. And that, in a sense, I think is dangerous because it's pushing away from that qualitative angle. It's pushing into the quantitative thing because it can then be displayed on a graph and it can look pretty and it can look like progress. But that's that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a danger. I'm making the same point again because it just annoys me so much. I think that's right. And I think quite often we have very short term uh, range or view on something. So, yeah, it's about it's about driving that. If, if you don't have an upwards and right curve of progress then you know you're not doing the right things but actually why don't we challenge some of that why don't we test and 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 do experiments around certain around things that might fail what you know i think of myself as a as as more kind of in the entrepreneurial mindset of test and fail and learn and constantly evolving uh, rather than um you know rather than kind of measuring against something which you think is quite fixed or or a strategy which you, you think is fixed like really test and learn it and throw it away if it doesn't work work out but that if you can start to take on some of those testing testing experiment kind of mindsets experimental mindsets then that might be a way that you can start to rip up that manual and that that kind of rule book if you like but i think if we also are trying to encourage lnd and lnd to put pressure on the rest of the business around this as well to take a much longer view a much more strategic uh, view of what learning a learning culture and organization needs to look like rather than those tactical next day wins that you have to have that shows that progress immediately after an intervention a learning intervention then you know maybe we can start to get to to building a learning culture which i think is going to be so important for the for the companies in order for them to remain relevant and stay competitive uh, yeah i agree with all of that 100 percent. i think that's a really positive way of thinking about it as well i do want to just challenge you slightly because you've you started this answer talking about cheaper options online which are scalable but not necessarily as good and what we were saying is one of the great drivers for the future is technology whereas in your answer you seem to be kind of saying technology is not the answer for L&D I would have thought that if technology is, if, if technology is such a driver for change then L&D has got to find a way of working with that not by kind of shoving it away and saying no, no, we need to stick with our model. It's a really good challenge, John. And 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 I, for me, there is a big difference between replacing humans with technology because you can, and actually the augmentation of the human with technology, if that makes sense. So what I mean by that is using technology for the things that it's really good at. Um, and for the things that maybe we as humans are not so good at, that's where technology can add some real value. But actually where where humans add way more value is in the ability to have some of those conversations with people to coach and to mentor, to advise, to show, to um, 
kind of walk walk through experiential uh, learning paradigms rather than just kind of giving people, you know, a snippet of knowledge. That said, you know, what we do at, at Future Build is, is building, we're building an online platform that is all about giving people, you know, access to a huge range of learning content. So, but I think it's about getting the balance right. It's not a one-size-fits-all solution. It's not that technology is the answer. Um, it's not that everybody should be doing purely micro learning in the flow of work, learning in the flow of work. It's actually that you need a range of different methodologies and approaches, a range of different experiences in order to really get that good grounding of what great learning really is and actually have the flexibility so that people can develop their own strategies and their own approaches um, to, to learning as well, whether that be finding a great coach to, to coach someone on, you know, one of the latest uh, needs in the business or looking up to someone who's a manager and being able to spend some time with them or whether that's you know reading blogs and listening to podcasts and being able to document and store those things um, as as good as good bits of, of, of knowledge as well so I think it's all about finding the right balance at an individual level at a team level at an organization wide level making sure that we don't say that um, technology is the silver bullet that actually we are starting to use technology in a positive way to to to, uh, to get deeper levels of of connection and impact for people and um and, and and making sure that we really leave no one behind in this in this journey as well um and i think that's one of the the key things if i could just give you a, a quick um a quick kind of analogy if you like or a quick kind of view about sure. a, 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 of, over over kind of history i think what we've done with the kind of industrial revolution, which which is an amazing an amazing thing, entirely amazing thing, which is what we we kind of uh, brought education to the masses. We uh, we took it from something which was only reserved for the aristocracy uh, or the very wealthy, and we brought it to a place where everyone has freely available education, and uh, and that's an amazing thing. However. I think that with some of the technological advances that we have now, we could go to a far more personalized approach rather than the factory model of education that we've currently got. And of course, I'm, I'm slightly talking about the formal system here, but I think it, it translates very well to, to the corporate L&D world as well, where we're given this, or often people are given a kind of one size fits all factory model, go and learn this thing or these 10 things and, and click through to the end. And once you get to the end, well done, you get a, a digital badge or a certificate or whatever. But actually, we're in a point now where we can create this person, entirely personalized learning journey for individuals. They can create their own entirely personalized learning journey, not just in terms of the content or the skills that they want to develop, but also the methodologies and approaches that they want to take. So it could be that you know individuals... I, I, for example, really dislike a linear course. I can't, I don't get on well with e-learning courses. I don't actually get on well, particularly well with, with classroom courses that are very linear in their, in their uh, progression. And that's largely because it's often not at the right level for me. It's either too hard or it's too easy. Often it's because some of the, some of that linear approach is, is just not interesting to me. I want to kind of skip on to the next bit to get the really juicy stuff that's actually going to going to help me. It's also probably because I'm an educator myself and kind of constantly criti critiquing the the kind of practices and pedagogic approaches that people are taking. Um, but that's a, that that means for me that I learn best when I'm with people, reflecting, talking through different things, and I also learn very well from reading and listening 
to podcasts, to books, to uh, to blogs and articles. And so I've kind of created my own kind of personalized learning cloud or personalized learning network, if you like, where I will go to certain people when I need to know certain things or I'll go to certain places if I can learn something on my own by reading and watching and that kind of thing. So I'm really trying to blend myself this um, this technology enhanced or technology enabled with the very interpersonal uh, relationships that I can build uh, with with individual people that can help me along the way as well. And if we can enable that for for a lot more people, then I think we're going to be in a, in a far better place than we currently are. And that's what we were meaning before when you were talking about the learning culture, I guess, is that approach to, or learning in the flow of work was the phrase that you used. Absolutely. Yeah. So learning in the flow of work is, is I think, until quite recently, it was a kind of a theoretical concept of, of this idea that you can actually learn at the point of need exactly what it is in, in order to unblock yourself, in order to um, solve some of the problems that you might be having that you, you currently don't know the answers to. And so largely theoretical because what our, our kind of former uh, view of learning was something that it happened and it still actually is the case, largely, where learning happens in a different place to where work happens. And you kind of go off site or you go to the training room or you go onto the course and put your headphones in and, you know, sit on your own watching videos uh, in an e-learning platform for a while. But it's never been fully integrated into the workplace. And I see learning in the flow of work as a approach that might mean that we can be both working and learning constantly at the same time. And in some fields, actually, in some disciplines, this is absolutely what happens. If I think of where I used to work, we were helping individuals change their careers to become software engineers at Makers Academy. And these people, are actually coders, software engineers, are constantly learning in the flow of work. They're, they're one of a unique group of people who are, you know, because they're working in new technologies, quite often they, are, they, they don't know all the answers, but they've developed the skills and the places to go and find the answers and and that's a lot of what we did um with with those early stage uh, and junior software engineers to, to help them understand where they can develop their skills without necessarily needing you know to go and ask people for help directly so i think this idea of learning in the flow of work is one where you can integrate fully the work that you're doing your productivity with 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 learning on demand at the point of need very easily accessible, almost ideally frictionless. And some of that would be with resources uh, such as, you know, blogs and internal platforms or or internal platforms or uh, or videos or podcasts. But also that some of that would be, well, actually this person who, you know, is uh, in a different team or even in a different comp- uh, company altogether could actually help you. Here's how to link up with them. And I think and here's how to ask them, ask them those kind of questions. And I think you know, that's a world which is, I can see now, I can visualize how that could, how, how that could be integrated into our uh, work systems and into our work processes in everyday life uh, much more. And there's a few people that are starting to experiment with this. This is definitely a big area that we're focusing on at Future Builders is how can we enable people to learn whilst, whilst in that flow of work as well. I think what's interesting about that point as well is you're saying that you use the example of tech of software developers and they they might hit a, a wall and therefore need to unblock themselves mm. so it's kind of very black and white you know you don't know how to write the next bit of code or whatever that's not necessarily true for somebody walking into a meeting who's not very good at 
meetings or somebody who's going to have to face a difficult conversation but they're not a very good communicator under those circumstances. And that goes back to the point you made previously about having that meta-awareness of your own skills and your own development needs because you can just as easily get help on how can I communicate better here, how can I intervene better there on those sort of softer skills as we call them. Absolutely. It's just as applicable if not more so. I know I've done that, being quite a clumsy oaf myself when it comes to dealing with the other humans. I have kind of stumbled many a time as a younger man and have learned to actually go away and ask advice or read a book or um, in my day there were no podcasts and stuff. But, you know, it really does make a difference. Having that awareness and getting that help and just implementing it very directly in those particular circumstances, you really can build up your skill set massively. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I'm so glad, John, that you brought that back around as well, because it's um, I think connecting some of those dots is is often uh, one of the difficult things. And, you know, we you know, I have, of course, been talking about this need for, for the, some of those meta skills. And and actually, we're talking about the world of, of or, or the, you know, the uh, learning in the flow of work. It, it, it may actually be seem like it's quite disparate to that. But it, you're, you're entirely right. You know, another scenario that, that kind of plays out in my head is, um is you know you, you might hear something in a meeting and it's a word that you're not familiar with and the example that's stuck with me at the moment that I can't get out of my head which is a, a dreadfully overused word but agile you know we need to you know, you know your your boss might say oh we need to be more agile and you're kind of like well what does agile really mean and you could quickly do a you know ask a go into your communication platform say what what does my boss mean by agile and straight away up comes a a video or talk or a blog about what it is so that next time you go into that meeting you can you can do exactly that in fact i did exactly this myself quite recently i needed to talk to one of our um, data science specialists about a particular type of um, artificial intelligence um, and this thing called recommender engines i had no idea what it was all about i uh, i kind of went onto um onto our platform that we had some playlists around what what, what this stuff is so i literally spent 15 minutes before a meeting, finding out about some of this stuff that I had no idea about, at least that meant, okay, I'm not going to be an expert in that time, but it means that I can hold a conversation, I can talk about some of the problems that I'm trying to do, and which we're trying to kind of develop and work through. And that meant that, you know, this individual was able to, to, to maybe lower their, um, their, lower the, uh, the level of the conversation to a point that I was, from, I was happy with. And I was kind of able to raise my um, level of conversation to a point that they was happy they were happy with and we came out with some really good positive moves forward so without without that learning in the flow of work if you like that I had and, and and preempting that as a problem that I had you know we would have had a far far more difficult conversation so we talked about what the challenge this poses for L&D we talked about learning in the flow of work the L&D culture about how we need to get people to be more or help people to become more adaptable and also have that meta awareness of how to learn and, and what learning they particularly need to do. And also talking about the how we need to sort of complement technology in L&D and, and use it skillfully, get the balance right. But there must be lots of things that we shouldn't be doing. Do you have any kind of points you want to make about what should we really avoid doing as an, as an L&D function? Yes. Um, so I've got a couple of thoughts around what L&D shouldn't be doing. I'm going to start off with with um, with a big, again, another big horrible stat, really, which is that I saw recently that L&D leaders are now 
giving their existing learning technologies an average MPS score of minus 57. So MPS, of course, being net promoter score, it's, it's the, 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 the measure which is widely used for how much you would recommend uh, a certain uh, product. And minus 57 is a pretty awful result. And that it doesn't sound no, good. It's not, not good at all. I mean, the, the scale goes from zero, uh, sorry, from minus 100 all the way through to plus 100. So minus 57 means that probably on average, most people are giving it, uh, you know, five, six out of 10, those, that kind of score. So, you know, pretty awful. Um, and, and that kind of got me thinking about if most L&D systems are, are not working out, they're not driving the kind of results that people are looking for. It's very hard to assess the true ROI of some of these things. Um, then, you know, why, why do it? I'd say, you know, challenge yourself and don't just buy the next shiny piece of software because it's marketed well or because it looks like, or because you've got, you know, fear of missing out and you need to have the next big thing. Actually think really carefully about what it is that learning and development needs to be and what your people really need. So don't just go and buy the latest shiny thing is one of the things that I would absolutely say, because I think that that regardless of how much the technology is improving, the effectiveness of that of some of these technologies is not necessarily improving the outcomes and the um, and the impact that it can have on 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 individual stuff. Are you talking about learning management systems? When you learning say that? management, the dreaded LMS. Yeah, dreaded LMS. Um, you know, we've had this recent move to kind of learning experience platforms. I think they're called. And actually, that whole industry is it's it's so clouded with different acronyms and uh, and, and different you know, solutions which broadly seem like they're the same thing. And it's very confusing. Um, so I think as an industry of technology providers for the L&D space, I think there is a there is a need to, to do something different. I think for me, one of those opportunities is about integration being a key rather than buying these great monolithic platforms that have every single feature that you could possibly imagine and you know most of those features actually never being used actually try and think about how you can integrate uh, approaches to learning into everyday systems that people are already using how can we plug in if you like a a tool that enables learning in the flow of work into a, an existing communication platform that that staff are already using rather than having to buy these these big cumbersome lms systems etc that really aren't being used uh, very well at all and i get why that is done i think one of the big reasons that you know these systems have got so so big is because actually the sales process going through procurement is, is something which means that the procurement teams will of, will often compare features against different products and the products that have got the most amount of features and seem like they're the most comprehensive ones are the are the ones that often win and um, and actually then they're, they're not often the ones that are the most effective and they're certainly not the ones that are enjoyed. Uh, that their use is enjoyed by, by by staff. So I would say, don't go for the shiny thing. Try and look for integration into existing platforms and existing experiences that people already have. Try and again augment the the work day with like with uh, moments of learning rather than thinking them of them as a separate thing that you do as a separate, completely separate aspect of work, learning and and the work being you know being completely. Uh, mutually exclusive um, and I think the other thing which is I think which is something incredibly important for me to get across with learning and development is that the reality is that learning happens everywhere and from anyone 
it isn't something that only happens in e-learning classrooms or in workshops in training rooms. Learning happens in blogs, on podcasts, on videos, from books, from the social interactions that we have, from coaching and mentoring, from practice uh, and practice and practice again. And then and then it kind of happens with with classes and workshops as well. So I think don't just assume that the intervention that you're creating as an L&D uh, professional is the thing that makes people change. There's actually all of these other areas of learning that people are going through in their everyday lives. And how can we start to look at connecting some of those those dots that are happening informally uh, and being able to somehow measure and pull them together to, to, to create a a, a more rich picture of, of learning across organisations. Just to sort of pull all this together and, and think through what could somebody listening to do, listening to this discussion, what could they do? What what kind of, you, you may have already touched on this, I think a little bit, but what kind of three bits of advice would you say that L&D departments should be doing now to prepare for this future we're talking about? Yeah, great. So uh, only three, that's my challenge here. Um, I think the, the, the biggest one of the biggest ones for me certainly is trans almost transferring the ownership of learning onto the individuals if if you think very basically about the difference between pedagogy and andragogy which is pedagogy being the art and science of teaching children andragogy being more the art and science of adults learning adults really want to take ownership of their of their own learning we want to to follow our path of curiosity, we want to um, we want to change uh, the way that we view things and, and develop our skills in the ways that we want to at the time that we want to do it. We want to use the the different modes and methodologies that that work for us. Um, and so, if you can give that ownership over to the individuals, then I think you've stand a far better chance of of getting highly motivated and engaged and enthusiastic learners that will develop the skills that they need to before you even realize that they they need to develop them so that was the first thing transferring that ownership of learning to an individuals for me i think a second one is again i've said this one already but I'll, I'll reinforce it which is making learning a part of work don't see it as something disparate and separate that only happens in certain places think about how you can integrate learning into everyday life so it becomes uh, it just becomes a habit. It becomes a natural part of everyone's uh, working day that they, that they, you know, take for granted almost that they're going to be learning stuff and that they're enjoying it in that way. I think at the moment we, on average, uh, have people uh, learn for like twenty minutes a, a week or something. It's absolutely staggering the the, the tiny amount of of um, formal learning that that people are doing in in the workplace. And but actually, there's probably a whole lot. A whole lot more that's happening that's just not appreciated by by L and D and by the wider business. So if we can make learning a part of the the, the flow of the work, the daily uh, the daily work practice, I think that would be um, an amazing thing. And that comes from enabling people to seek out their own learning again, making them be the owners of their learning, but also enabling better connection to other people. So how can we push people together to form connections to enable? some of that organic learning to happen in a much better better way uh, the final thing for me is and this is a this is a bit of a, a funny one and i hope it doesn't come across as a completely contradicting myself which occasionally i do um but it's not just to focus on micro learning opportunities and scalable cheap solutions but actually to take on board that some people need really long-term learning that will take a lot of time a lot of energy 
uh, especially when they're looking to develop into new roles to change ch- change their roles and to encourage that kind of internal mobility um, within your organization. It's about having both the opportunity for micro and for macro learning. It's about it's about having you know that tactical at the point of need learning whilst being able to be on a long term learning journey to continually develop um, your you know your needs for the for the longer term. So don't just focus focus on the macro. Focus on the on the micro. Sorry, don't just focus on the micro. Focus on the macro and enable people and give people the time and the space that they need to do really effective learning. I think this is of huge importance. Because I really do, really, really do believe that the people are the are your best resource uh, within an organisation, and and if people aren't growing, really likely to lose them if they're not growing because they'll go to somewhere where, where somewhere else where they are enabled to grow. Well, thanks for that. Those are really interesting points, and I, I'm I'm trying to keep these podcasts a bit shorter, but there's so many questions I could ask based <laughs> just on on the last sort of couple of minutes of what you said. But when the first thing you said there was about ownership of learning passing that to individuals and have you got any tips about how you can actually do that i have got a couple of things yeah um and i'm by the way very happy to talk but i'm, I'm also very conscious of your of your listeners as well um i think a couple of a couple of things just off the top of my head i would say um individual budgets i think is a good thing that you could focus on so i know a lot of people are moving towards this now so rather than having centralized centralized budgets if you can have individual uh, budgets per person where they can literally spend that money on anything. Uh, I know I've been very fortunate in some of the startups that I've that I've worked with, uh, worked in and worked with, um, where they've they've given you a, a set amount of money and you can spend that freely on anything that you you want to in, in order to develop your own skills. So I think that's a that's a really positive way forward. I would also think about how we can integrate kind of customer facing products. And what I mean by that is things you know I learn from online blogs and from YouTube videos and from podcasts like this. How can we integrate some of that stuff that we don't necessarily think of when we think of of uh, learning and development in organizations? How can we integrate that into uh, and, and, and make that available to our staff rather than blocking it uh, as so often um, people do as well? Um, I think just on that point though, I would, yeah. I would just add as well, just encourage them to become creators of that content and share their own expertise. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, my um, again, without going into, into too much detail, I did a I did an MA um, recently in creative and media education, and one of my big focuses for that was actually, and what I built was essentially a, a social learning platform, which was largely focused on people being creators of of content, not just consumers. Um, and I, so, yeah, I am fully fully on board with you on that one. I think that's one of the best ways to learn is from from creation and and making. Okay, well, thanks very much for that, uh, Spencer. The three things that you were saying was about ownership of learning, making that, uh, passing that to the individuals, and you gave us some ideas about how that might work. You talked about integrating learning into the work, which we talked about before as well when we were, when we were saying learning in the flow of work. We're talking about a lot about that and and how to create the environment whereby that happens. And then lastly, about the macro micro, which I think is a really important point because if we get too much into this learn just in time learning where you get what the skill you need just at the moment you need it it does become very micro and although that's great and it can all you know build up there is still a place for that kind of slower bigger macro approach as well so i think it's a really important point to to keep that keep our eye on that as well absolutely so thank you very much for your thoughts around that spencer i really appreciate it. it's been a really good conversation and thank you for your time thank you for your thoughts 
and hope you can come back one day on this podcast in the future and then we'll see if your predictions are correct. Uh, John, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed the conversation. And yeah, please, I would love to come back and have, have further conversations. We'll, we'll see how we, uh, how we get on with some of these predictions, like you say. Thank you so much. Thank you.